If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 8, or if you're going to go use an app, you can do that at this moment. And while you're doing that, I invite you to watch this short video that I have prepared for us this morning. Progressive presents At Home with Baker Mayfield. Not remember the hallway being this long. Emily! I did it all in one trip! A light take on sometimes people's inability to ask for help. Right? It's it's hard for us to ask for help. Maybe we're like that guy you don't know who he was, Baker Mayfield, quarterback of the Browns. There might be part of us in our life that we don't ask other people for help, or if we do and we don't get a response, we have this sense of pride that comes in our life because we know that we're going to be able to do it ourselves. Not asking for help is this badge of honor that we can then wear, saying, Emily, I did it all in one trip. We like to point to the things that we did, the the piles of groceries that we brought in all by ourselves without anybody who helped us do that. The stuff that we put away all on our own and no one helped me do that. This remodel job, yeah, I did that all by myself. I didn't ask for any help. I could change that tire by myself, carry the heavy things. I can take five kids to a store by myself, of which I've actually never done. But if I did, man, that would be a badge of honor I would have. I would say, you know, I took five kids under eight to the store by myself. You think of what kind of badge of honor that would be. I don't think it's just potential accomplishments that cause us to not ask for help. Sometimes we get to the point where we don't even know what to ask for. Our lives become so overwhelming and chaotic and and we don't know what's going on. And, And when someone asks you, hey, can I help you? You have a blank stare on your face because you don't even know what they could help with. There's, there's so many things that you can't even pinpoint one of them. Y- you can't say how or what would even be helpful because your life is so overwhelmed. But there's another reason, too, that we 
tend to not ask for help. And that can be letting people into our lives and letting them really know what it's like to be you. And I think we sometimes even do this in unconscious ways. I've heard stories of people who hire like a, a cleaning service to come clean their house a little bit. And I'll hear them say, well, the cleaning service is coming tomorrow, so I've got to make sure I do a little cleaning tonight. Because we don't want to let them know what the house is actually like. We don't want them to know what our life is actually like. We minimize it. We don't want them coming in. We say, well, you know, I could use help for that, but I probably could do it on my own. I don't want to inconvenience you. All of these scenarios where we could ask for help, we don't until perhaps we become so overwhelmed with what's going on in our life that we become more desperate. Perhaps we've all experienced those times where we could say, I can, I can ask for help, or I should ask for help, or maybe it's even gotten to this point where, where it goes past, past the, the needing help and into the act of desperation mode. I think this past week or even this past year has, has laid bare in our lives the many different ways that we need help even if it's just small, simple things. In the last year, we experienced lies and fear adjusting and tainting our perspective on viruses and vaccines. We've experienced perhaps rose-colored glasses or scales causing us to not see people for who they are people in the image of God, people reduced to sets of beliefs or the color of their skin or the worst actions they've ever done in our life, and we need some help. We need some help to, to remove those scales from our eyes, for our eyes to be opened, for our minds to be welcoming. We need help removing fears and discerning truths. We need help loving our neighbors and remembering what that's like. What is it like to see neighbors anymore? We need help advocating for truth and for justice. We need help removing fears and inserting peace into our lives. We need help. Perhaps desperately so. And it's in a spot of desperation, maybe where we don't know how to move forward, that Jesus actually meets people. Jesus meets people in their time of desperation where they don't know what to do, and instead they end up seeking him out and turning to him for life transformation. You know, just before this uh, passage we're about to read, the story from the Jesus Book Bible, uh, Jesus Storybook Bible said, Jesus is returning from the, the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And he, he comes to the east side, and, and he just on the west side had 
had helped someone who was perhaps you could say desperate. He helped someone who was on the outside looking in. This was a, a, a gentle, a Gentile person. And he was inflicted with, with demons. And Jesus sees this man and, and out of a place which was probably desperation in this man's life or maybe his father's because of what was going on and how the demons were interacting with him, Jesus met that person in desperation and healed him. Taking him from this place where he was cast off, he was far off, and he was in desperation to a place where he was included, where he was seen, where he was heard, where he was known and he could be known. And now, in this story that we're going to read today, Jesus meets two more people who are desperate. Desperate for some change in their life. So let's look at Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 40. Once I get there. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. For they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader. So this is technically a synagogue leader. This is the guy on the inside, right? He's, he's a Jewish person. He's counted. Came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Because his daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him, touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she, should, she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except for Peter and John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit turned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what happened. We are introduced to two desperate people 
one person, the synagogue leader. If we can go to the next slide. Uh, can't control it. Um, Jairus, the synagogue leader. What we see here is not all people who were Jewish were against God and, or against Jesus, right? Uh, we see that there were, there were people who were Jewish who were willing to go to Jesus. Not everyone was against everything that he was doing. We have a synagogue leader coming to Jesus, but he's desperate. He knows that there's nothing that, that can happen that can heal his, his girl, that doctors perhaps haven't been of any help. And so he goes to Jesus for his 12-year-old little girl. And he falls at Jesus' feet and pleads with Jesus, come, please come to my home and see my daughter. Come to my house. It doesn't look like this was a very long conversation because shortly thereafter this verse, Jesus starts moving towards the house. But he interacted in that point in time with another person who was desperate. This person really was the outside and the outside looking in. She had been bleeding for 12 years and no one could heal her. A lot of people say that Luke, the author of this gospel, was in fact a doctor. I wonder how much it pained him to write those words. Perhaps he knew people, too, that, that he interacted with as a doctor that he could not heal. No one could heal this woman for 12 years, seeking treatment from doctors, perhaps trying different things, and nothing is working. She still remains on the outside looking in. It's because she was unclean. Someone who would be suffering from a bleeding condition would be someone who is mostly overlooked because if you touch that person, then you become unclean. Anything that that person touches now becomes unclean. Separated out, away from perhaps family, away from people. But yet she knows that perhaps some type of healing is only a little bit away. That if she would just be able to meet with Jesus and touch him, even just touch his, his coat, that she could be healed. And so as Jesus is, is walking to Jairus' house, perhaps she thinks this is my opportunity so even though she's considered unclean and there's crowds of not socially distanced people, right? Uh, there are tons of crowds of people that were blocking her way to Jesus as Jesus was walking to Jairus' house. She decides that she's going to seek out Jesus to, to walk through the crowd, to get inch by inch, footstep by footstep closer to what would be life. Believing that if she just touched him, she would no longer be unclean. And it goes straight away in the face of the law that was in the land. 
She shouldn't, have, she shouldn't have been walking through there. If she should have been walking through there, she should have been yelling, unclean, unclean, unclean. I'm an unclean person. Don't touch me, don't touch me, don't touch me. And yet, that's not mentioned in Scripture. She walks close to Jesus. And then when she gets there, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Something miraculous happened. Her bleeding stopped. Instead of her making Jesus unclean by her touch of his cloak, instead, Jesus makes her clean. Restoring life, taking her from the outside and bringing her inside, you could say. And Jesus noticed it. He noticed that, that something happened, that the Holy Spirit perhaps was working through him by way of her faith to heal her, even though Jesus wasn't consciously knowing that that was happening. Jesus healing through the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that the Spirit's power had gone out, he stops in his tracks. As he stops in his tracks, the desperate Jairus is kind of probably wondering, hey, Jesus, what's going on? We're, we're going to my house, remember? And, and the disciples, they try to rationalize what's going on and saying, well, Jesus, you know, look at all the people. There's tons of people, and, and, and they were pushing against you. You know, that's who touched you. But Jesus says, no, there's, there's something that has happened here and something that I need to know more about, perhaps, or, or something that I want someone else to give testimony to. And so as they stop, the woman notices that she can't leave. Jesus is, is calling her out on, on what happened, and she needs to perhaps confess, and so trembling. Trembling, she falls before Jesus' feet and recounts, tells the people that she's the one that touched him, but also the testimony of what happened, the testimony of the, the healing, the bringing of wholeness, the restoration of life. The testimony that made her no longer an outsider looking in, having to walk around saying, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. In that moment, you could say she surrendered everything to Jesus. In Jesus, he responds, your faith has made you well. I think sometimes this woman can be a little bit maligned or or looked down upon because you know she kind of was sneaky and, and came up behind Jesus and touched him but that's not what we actually see in scripture we see in scripture that Jesus Jesus talks about her faith Jesus he doesn't say what you did was wrong instead he says your faith has made you well he says that trembling touch that you you had that that trembling reaching out to me because you know that I could do something in this situation that mattered and he wanted to give 
give her reassurance that those actions which she did, perhaps in secret, they don't need to stay secret anymore. That, that he can take that budding faith in her life and, and make it into something more by the testimony she can give to others of what God has done in her life. As Jesus is, is talking to this woman and, and saying, you can go in peace, the worst fear of Jairus' life perhaps happened. One of the servants of his house comes, comes running in and, and says, your daughter's dead. There's no point in bothering the teacher anymore. While there was a beautiful healing and a restoration of life for this woman, it all of a sudden seems for Jairus that that's not what's going to take place. He perhaps knew that his daughter didn't have much time. That's why he, he ran to Jesus and he pleaded before him to come to his house. But, but maybe that's not the end of the story for Jairus or his daughter. Because Jairus just realized and saw and heard the testimony of a woman whose life had been restored just by touching Jesus. Perhaps Jairus wondered what what would happen if, if Jesus touched my daughter and, and Jesus prods perhaps that budding faith that's within his own life, within Jairus' life? The, maybe he, he prods the doubt and faith that are in his mind. And he says, just believe, said Jairus. But here too, if there's some clear things that make someone unclean, death is one of them. Death and continual bleeding. And so here again, we have this, this time where, where the ceremonial law says that no one can touch a dead body. No one's supposed to touch a dead body or, or they themselves would become unclean. And Jesus, he says, believe, and he, and he walks. We're not there yet. You can take that down. That's okay. Uh, you're doing great back there, by the way, Justin. Uh, you know, we, we see Jesus get to the house, and, and he encounters these people who are mourning on the outside. The mourning has already begun. There's, I think, I don't know if it's in Mark that there's instruments there already, but um, the mourning process has already begun that the people are, are weeping over this 12-year-old daughter that had died. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm going to go wake her up. Don't worry, she's just sleeping. And the people laugh. I don't know what people would normally go from mourning to laughing so quickly. But there's a passage earlier, Luke chapter 6, verse 21, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I don't have it on the screen, I realize, says this in the second half, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Perhaps this is specifically one of those times where Jesus is bringing about one of those beatitudes in the life, where the people who are outside that are aware of the death will somehow 
have those moments where they will laugh at what was going on. And so Jesus takes Peter and James and the two par- and John and, and the two parents inside and he reaches out and he touches the girl. He says, my child, get up. Jesus, once again, this time knowingly, reaches out and touches someone who's on the outside, someone who is ceremonially unclean, completely disregarding that law, Jesus does, to touch the girl. And the same thing that happened to the woman happens to the girl. Jesus' touch does not make Jesus unclean. It makes them clean. It makes the little girl whole. It restores her life. It renews her life. In the matter of a day or a few hours, the disciples and a couple other people witnessed Jesus making the unclean clean. Making what they thought to be true, that when someone was dead, well, they're gone. If the doctors can't heal you, it's done. And making those two things untrue. Stopping bleeding and restoring life, Jesus does. Transforming the outsider again. Another story of the outsider being transformed to someone who is within. Someone who is welcome. Someone who is transformed by God into something new something whole. We see Jesus getting his hands dirty, you could say. He's not thrown off by by the uncomfortable situations. He's not thrown off by the problems that the world was experiencing. He's not thrown off by the, the death and disease that he saw. Instead, Jesus shares in people's uncleanness, in that sickness and death, and he turns uncleanness into wholeness because he loves his people. He enters his people's lives, and he knows he has sovereignty over them to to change what's going on, to restore, to renew, to transform And that's a truth that continues to today. We don't need to be worried about asking Jesus for help. To to say, we can do it on our own, Jesus, we got it. We don't need to be worried about crying out to God and inconveniencing him. It's not an inconvenience. We don't need to be worried about overwhelming him with all the different things that are going on in our world or our life. We don't need to worry about getting him dirty with our problems because that can't happen. When the unclean touch Jesus, the unclean become clean. Jesus is willing, and he's already here with us. He's already willing and here to enter into the mess of our brokenness, to transform that brokenness into spiritual wholeness, into transforming and testifying faith. He welcomes that that trembling touch. 
like the woman who was perhaps nervous to come before Jesus and she gets down on the ground and, and just trembles before him. Jesus welcomes the, the public pleading. He welcomes the, the cries for help. Whatever form they may come, Jesus welcomes them. And then in response, he brings his loving concern. He brings his sovereignty over life. He takes that fragile faith and nourishes it, nourishes it, nudging it into belief. He takes our life and he brings us to the point where, where we must be dependent upon him where we recognize day in and day out that we trust and we, we rely on God for every moment. We trust in him and, and his own timing, which might be different than our own. The woman was bleeding for 12 years. I'm sure her timing was different than what God's timing was. And even Jairus, Jairus probably thought that he, Jesus was going to heal a living girl rather than a dead one. But those things, too, show us that we, too, can trust and believe that we, too, at one point, will be raised from the dead through belief in Christ. Whatever we experience, whatever difficulties, health ailments, whatever troubles we experience on this earth, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is Christ being the first fruits of the dead, the first one who has been brought back from the dead and that we too as believers in him will follow. I wonder how or what that next step of faith is for us. What's that next step in our own journey at this point? Where is it that Christ is nudging you? Is it like the woman where Jesus nudges by asking who touched me to, to say something about their own faith, to testify for what they've believed and how God has worked in their life? Or are you in a spot where, where you're perhaps down in the dumps? not knowing what's going to happen. Maybe that's like the way Jairus was after he had heard news about his daughter's death. Do you need Jesus to nudge you there? He's waiting. He's waiting and he's present with you to push you on, whatever, whatever next step of your life is. You don't, you don't go that step alone. You don't, you don't do it by yourself, even if you're socially distant from everybody, even if you're living in a house by yourself, even if all the kids have left your home and it's just you and your wife. I don't know what that experience is like. I kind of look forward to that day at this point. But what is it? What's that, what's that next step that God's bringing you towards? If you don't know what, ask him. Let's do that together. Lord, 
It's never an inconvenience to you when one of your children comes to you. Whether they're overwhelmed, they don't have words, and they cry out, not even making coherent sentences, you accept it. And we know that the Spirit intercedes on, on our behalf in making the incoherent coherent to you. You accept our, our, our trembling hesitation to come to you. You accept all of it from your children. And you, as a, as a loving father, guide us continually along, just as Jesus did with these two people, nudging us a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further in our trust to you. We pray that even during this time, we would either increase our trust in you or we would begin it. Lord, we pray that you would begin people's trust in you throughout this nation. That we can know that you are a loving, gracious, merciful, and compassionate God who cares for his people in all their sufferings, in all their trouble, in all their discord. Help us. Maybe take our faith from, from one of silent belief to testifying faith that we too may share with others why we believe in God. To share the good news that you've done in our own life that others may be encouraged as well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.